Good morning. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and the statistic shows that one in four women will experience domestic violence at some point in her life, and 99% of victims will also suffer financial abuse. And so today I am talking with Kristen Walters, who is with the local Mankato Area Committee Against Domestic Abuse, also known as CADA. Good morning, Kristen. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on here. It's a topic that's been around for eons and hasn't always been talked about freely. And now there's Domestic Violence Awareness Month to talk about that. What sorts of things do you do here in town in Mankato with the the CADA house? Yeah, so CADA is a nonprofit and we serve victims and survivors of relationship abuse and sexual violence. We have advocates throughout the nine county region So we have six or seven offices throughout the area and we have a shelter for women and children. We do supervised parenting time and exchanges and we also have education programs. Now the statistic I said was one in four women will experience domestic violence at some point in her life. That's I assume a national average. Is that similar to Minnesota across the board or what is it like here in our Southern Minnesota area? I mean, it's hard to have those kind of statistics because domestic violence and relationship abuse are so underreported. But I can say that last year at CADA, our advocates helped on the crisis line, our 24-hour helpline, over 8,000 times. We took over 8,000 calls just last year alone. Um, And in a typical year, CADA serves between two and 3,000 people in South Central Minnesota. And last year in 2020, statewide, at least 30 people lost their lives to domestic violence. Now, as I drive by CADA on Stoltzman Road, I noticed that now you've got a whole bunch of posters along there with pictures of women. And I assume somehow that's involved in domestic violence as a part of this October Awareness Month. Yes, so that is our domestic violence memorial walk. And there are, signs with pictures and names of every victim that we know of who was murdered as a result of domestic violence. Some of the people were in a current relationship or former relationship with the person who murdered them, and others were family members, friends, children, bystanders who happened to be involved in a domestic incident or even just around during a domestic incident and who lost their lives. So there are men, women, children on those signs, and they are just dedicated to each of those individuals who who were murdered last year. Now, 30, is that a significant number in terms of more than usual, uh, less than usual, you know, was COVID, so I don't know if that impacted the way things turned out or not. So Violence Free Minnesota is the coalition to end relationship abuse, and they gathered these stories every year and they've been doing it for 30 plus years and they have said that there has been no identifiable trend some year the numbers are up some years the number are down there is no trend the only trend is it's still happening and it's happening too much covid certainly did impact our field and what victims and survivors were experiencing but in terms of numbers no identifiable trend 
I was wondering because a lot of people were stuck at home and sometimes as a way to get out of maybe a domestic situation, maybe they had to go to work or school or something and they weren't away from that. But last year might have changed those things because a lot of people were working at home, for example, or staying home from school. So I assume that maybe there was a lot more going on because of that. Absolutely. I think when lockdowns were first starting to happen, we had a lot of brainstorming meetings on how we could make our services accessible to people who were trapped at home with an abusive partner. We implemented text lines. We papered grocery stores and laundromats and all those critical services with flyers about our services. But yeah, lockdown was dangerous. People were home with abusive partners. Abusive partners were were weaponizing COVID in, in ways to control their victims, telling them that if they went to a shelter, they would get COVID, or if they went to um, a hospital for medical treatment, there wouldn't be any space, or they would get COVID that way. So really using that as a, another weapon and another tool to, to maintain control over someone. And you mentioned control, and a lot of that is what abuse is because sometimes people say well i didn't see any bruises or that sort of thing so they think well they're obviously not being abused then so let's talk about what is abuse we define abuse as any kind of pattern of behavior that is aimed at controlling or maintaining power over a partner so that can be like you said earlier financial abuse happens in almost every domestic violence situation there's emotional abuse and mental abuse there's sexual violence and, and physical violence, people using children to, to control their partner. Even if they're separated, that continues. Physical violence is a component. And I think what makes emotional or mental abuse especially scary is the threat of violence, even if physical violence has never happened. But knowing that it could or that it might happen is what keeps people trapped in those situations. I want to share a personal case with my sister. For 12 years, she was in an abusive relationship, married, and I didn't know it. And I'm embarrassed to say now that I did not know that. And then when I found out, I felt horrible thinking, why didn't I do something? In her case, her husband had basically distanced her from the rest of the family. She So she withdrew from everybody. And I just thought she was, I just thought, ah, being whatever my sister, Teresa. Right. And so one of the things he would do, for example, animals meant the most to her. They were just mm. her heart and soul. So he would threaten he would kill her pets, things like that. Right. And he actually would cut up her clothes, just things like that that none of the rest of us saw. But I mean, when you have that threat, and, and when my mom would come to the house, we just thought that she hated, hated, my mom thought she was hated because my sister would scream at her to get the you know what out of there. Turns out her husband was in the hallway with the gun saying, you, you let your mom and she's dead. So all those things yeah. that for years we didn't know, and it was finally after 12 years when someone tried to, to help her get a divorce, when she came to me and said, Karen, I want to tell you something. And I was just floored. So yeah, it's embarrassing to say that I didn't know that. I mean, looking back, I should have seen the signs but a lot of people don't know what to look for. So talk about that. Oh, Maybe then, if you don't know, what, what should you look for or consider? Right. I mean, certainly no shame in not seeing the signs because we know that abusive partners are incredibly good at hiding it and keeping up a good face. And I can name tons of people who the first thing is, oh my gosh, we never would have expected that. But some red flags that we like to point out, 
extreme jealousy by a partner, being super concerned with who someone is spending time with, that they might be out there cheating on them, any kind of extreme jealousy, red flag, isolating behavior, like you said, like if someone's withdrawing or they're making a lot of excuses to not spend time with others, an abusive partner or unhealthy partner might also demand that all personal time is spent together and you don't have any time for yourself or anyone else. Controlling behavior, same way, using pets, using children, destroying property, any of those kind of things are red flags. Intimidation during arguments. You mentioned cutting up clothes or we've heard a lot of like punching walls or, or doors, towering over someone and getting big during an argument. That kind of intimidation that physical violence is just like a step further beyond what's happening now. Also something that happens a lot especially in newer relationships is a new phrase that's called love bombing, or that's like really coming on so strong and really like wanting to spend all of your time and almost like obsessive behavior. All of those things are red flags, but again, they're hard for people outside of the relationship to see. And that's why we really try to spread the word as much as possible, because if you can start to see some of these, these red flags, then maybe can identify what's happening sooner. I think when you're younger, I remember being younger and not realizing a lot of these things. Maybe I hear some of my students, in fact, say, oh, he's so great. He texts me all the time. He calls me all the time. And, you know, I see red flags because it's almost obsessive too much. But a lot of times they think that this attention is doting and it's wonderful, et cetera. So how do you determine when it's just somebody that is really into you versus somebody that's going crossing that line? I mean, it's totally hard to tell because everyone's personal boundaries look different. And so I think if if someone feels overwhelmed by the intensity of the relationship, that's a problem. If things seem too good to be true, sometimes they are. If your boundaries aren't respected, if I can't say, you know, I really just want a night to myself or I want a night with my girlfriends or I'm sick of talking on the phone. If that's not respected and causes conflict, that's problematic or wanting to move too quickly in the relationship. Oh, you should move in with me. Oh, like all of those, if you're not ready and that hasn't been a conversation could be a problem or someone who's overly needy and just needs a lot of your attention and time and validation that you don't feel like you could take a step back without there being conflict. Those are when problematic things start to arise. I think it's gotten even worse with social media because before you didn't have the constant texting or the Facebook or the Twitter or all that sort of thing. So I think it's changed through the years maybe and how it's carried out. Absolutely. We see young people like high school and junior high even whose boyfriends or girlfriends will want them to stay on the phone overnight, like all the time. Overnight, you can't sleep or that they are paying such close attention to who likes your photos or who comments on your photos. And that brings out that extreme jealousy or demanding that you share passwords and that they can log in and see all your private online activity. Yeah, we all, I think with social media have experienced an increase of how much our lives are out in the public. And it certainly has become a way to to maintain control as well. And you mentioned the financial part. How does that usually present itself? You know, it it can be really subtle or it can be extremely overt. So financial abuse can be anything from something, something I don't want to say small, but like 
something innocuous, like just tracking what you're spending, you know, well, why would you spend that much? Blah, blah, blah. And of course, I mean, all, all like long-term relationships, you're going to have some conversations about finances, but if the decision-making is unequitable, if someone controls your access to money, demands that you turn over paychecks, credit cards, passwords. When I was an advocate, a lot of people would have to turn in their receipts from groceries to say like, this is to prove what they spent money on. Harassing people at work are constantly showing up at work, constantly calling so that boss is like, we can't have this kind of behavior here and, and someone might lose their job. Destroying work uniforms, not giving someone the car to get to work, not paying child support. Any of those things can be financial abuse. As you've gone through the years, what are some of the things you have seen? I did work with someone whose partner cut up all of their their clothes. They destroyed their work clothes and they had to wear scrubs. And so it's not like they could wear just anything to work, but they'd have to pay extra money for these special scrubs and the partner would, would destroy those. Something I've seen a lot of is using children, threatening to call child protection. If someone leaves or when it's, dad's weekend dad showers them with gifts and nice things and points out like well since your mom left they can't she can't provide you this kind of stuff or using the court system as a weapon ongoing custody battles or child protection battles that kind of thing those are some pretty common things that that i had seen when i was an advocate i do think if there's any of those those red flags we talked about others that can be certainly problematic some other things that are maybe a bit more subtle and don't necessarily present themselves as a problem between two partners is if one person is constantly blaming others for their behavior. If, well, my ex was crazy and she just, everything was, every demise of that relationship was because of my ex or anything that goes wrong, even in your own relationship is your fault. Problems at school or work or always blamed on someone else. So that kind of lack of being able to take accountability for for any of your own behavior. I also think that some hypersensitivity is pretty common. Easily set off, easily upset, perceives pretty small things as personal attacks. Someone who picks fights or is quick to anger, that's certainly at least signs of unhealthy behavior. People who are disrespectful of others. I mean, if a partner is bad-mouthing your friends, your family, and putting them down to you, that's not great. Or someone who has little regard for others' feelings or others' boundaries just in general isn't respectful. They might not be respectful to you someday. And I know sometimes it can border on going into stalking. Absolutely. And like we were talking about earlier with technology, stalking is extremely common. And with all of the ways to turn on location on different apps and a lot of our lives being more public now, stalking just becomes a lot more common. How long do some people put up with it? Sometimes it takes a long time and something drastic has to happen before somebody will make that change. I mean, it's absolutely true. I think one misconception that a lot of a lot of us have about relationship abuse and leaving an abusive relationship is that it's like a one-time event. You leave and it's done. But the reality is leaving is a process. And once you've even left the home or left the relationship, it's not over. The abusive tactics will still continue frequently. 
and yeah, it's a process. And I, I don't know if this is still the statistic, but they used to say it would take someone seven times leaving an abusive relationship before they could leave for good. I've certainly worked with a number of people who return to an abusive relationship willingly or unwillingly. Financial stuff is a huge one. So if if I leave an abusive relationship and I don't have the money to get a new apartment, to get a car, to find childcare, any of those things, you're facing the uncertainty of being homeless versus the uncertainty of having a home that maybe isn't safe. That's a hard trade-off for for a number of people. When someone leaves, that is the most dangerous time because this abusive partner sees their power slipping away and that makes people react in real nasty ways. It's interesting because a lot of time when someone is abused, you'll hear someone else say, well, why don't they just leave? If really the, it was that bad, they would just leave. Absolutely. It's incredibly challenging to leave, especially because you know that the abuse won't stop necessarily. And how hard is it to hide? And will I have to move? Will I have to get a new job? Like a lot of people we work with have to start completely over from square one and leave their family and support systems. And for some people, you know, they have the resources to have that leaving just be a small blip in their history and can move past it. Some people, it, it really uproots every part of life. What can people do? I know Kate is there and you provide services. So what are some steps? Let's say somebody's listening to this and say, gee, I think I might be in this situation. Everyone's situation is so drastically different. And I think that's part of why working with an advocate at CADA can be so beneficial because we can talk through everyone's individual circumstances and give options. Some people need a, a legal restraining order. Some people that would not be a good idea. For some people, they may need to figure out finances. Some people, they may be set. So I do think that's one great thing about working with an advocate is they can listen to your individual situation and help. It can be so hard to think of like, what do I do next? But an advocate really with our experience and education and all of that can really just help clean things up in, in someone's head and make a clear path forward. And we do that with the survivor leading the whole process. Like no one will ever tell anyone what to do or how to do it, but just say, okay, what I'm hearing is this maybe doesn't sound like the best option. If you go with this option, here's what that could look like. So I do think working with an advocate is incredibly important. How do you get in contact with someone who is an advocate? What do you do? I mean, where's that first call go to? If people are calling CADA, they're frequently calling our 24-hour helpline, and that is answered by an advocate 24-7. So that advocate will generally try to figure out what it is that person's looking for and send them to the correct area. If they need housing resources, we have a housing advocate. If they need some legal assistance, they can talk to one of these advocates. Or if they just need emotional support and need to process, person on the phone can do that. That's one thing I like about CADA is we have advocates in many different towns. So those advocates are so familiar with the resources in that area. Oh, I know if you go to this thrift store during this time of day and talk to Kelly, she can help you out. So a lot of what our advocates do is direct people to resources and other nonprofits that will help them go to 
apartment viewings or yeah, help fill out the 50 pages you have to fill out for certain programs. So yes, our advocates do a lot of information and referrals to other other organizations. How many times do women actually maybe say they're going to file against someone when they're like, maybe the police are called out and then all of a sudden they say, no, I'm not going to press charges. Does that happen quite often? It does. I think it happens for a lot of reasons. I think realizing the amount of work that might go into reporting can be really intimidating. And like, I just, a lot of people just want to move on. They don't want to deal with all the legal stuff and they just want to get back to life as normal as quickly as possible. And that makes complete sense. Some people are intimidated out of it. You know, I think that this would set him off further. And so I don't want to do that. But I would say a lot of people just want to get back to life as normal and put this incident or this relationship behind them. But I've always heard then after that, there's the honeymoon phase where they always say, I'm not going to do this again. This will never happen again. And that's kind of the, the whole cycle that, that happens a lot of times in abuse cases. Completely. There's the explosion and the, the violence or whatever kind of eruption there is. And then there is that honeymoon. I'm so sorry. This will never happen again. Here's a beautiful present. And then eventually you get back to that tension phase where things feel uncertain and things feel a bit scary and you can tell it's just building up to something which makes it so hard to leave because eventually you do get back to the the honeymoon phase and rarely is someone abusive at the beginning of a relationship like you so you have those memories of how this person used to be and you hope you can get there again and there's always in that honeymoon moon phase excuses work is just really terrible. And when my boss quits, I'll, I'll be better. Or, you know, I was really drunk. And so you do latch on to those. Well, yeah, he's just really stressed right now. So it does make it challenging. So what, what do you advise women then? I would say, trust your instincts. If something doesn't feel right and it's not comfortable for you, you don't have to put up with it. And I would say, talk to friends and family. You know, a lot of what I see with abusive partners is like, you're not allowed to talk to anyone about our relationship, but that's not okay. And so if you are sharing things with your friends and family and they're like, uh, hold on, that's a, that, that's a problem. I just think keeping those kind of secrets can further let someone down that path. And then if someone is concerned, give us a call we can talk about those things. And a lot of times people call and they're like, I don't know if this is abuse, but dot, dot, dot. And that's a lot of our conversations. And of course, we also don't define what abuse is for someone, but if it doesn't feel right, if you're scared of your partner, if you're scared to initiate anything that could cause conflict, it's certainly a red flag and something to maybe seek some outside help with. Know that there's people out there to help. What is the number to call and how can they contact you or any other center, maybe if they're not here in Mankato? Our 24-hour helpline is 1-800-477-0466. People can also visit our website. That has information about how to text an advocate, how to email an advocate, uh, web chats with our advocates. And that is kadamn.org. So C-A-D-A-M-N, like Minnesota.org. And then if someone's outside of the area, they can call day one. So day one will connect someone with an advocate closest to them. So if you're calling from Bemidji, 
it'll get you to the closest domestic or sexual violence agency. So the phone number for day one is 1-866-223-1111. Can you Google online just day one as well? Day one, Minnesota would get you to the right place. Why do people come to see you? At what point do people come to the shelter? For any number of reasons. Some people just need to leave right now. They need to leave. It can be just after a big fight, after a violent incident, or it could just be the optimum optimum time to leave. Like my partner's a long haul trucker and he's out for three weeks and I know it's, it's my time I can go. Some people will come because a child got hurt for the first time. Some folks are here because they've been sexually assaulted and they don't feel safe in their home anymore. Some people just need like a break and need a weekend and they don't know their next plan, but they just need to get out. Often people are waiting for like a restraining order to be signed by a judge. So once they get that, they'll feel safe to go home. Basically, I think people come to shelter or talk to an advocate when they're more scared of staying than they are scared of leaving. Relationship abuse happens to anyone, regardless of age, gender, race, um, et cetera. I mean, however, we do know that violence disproportionately impacts marginalized communities, LGBT communities, BIPOC individuals, and then the systems that people have to go through after abuse, county government assistance, legal systems, all of those are often further weaponized to harm those individuals because of systemic racism, sexism, heterosexism, et cetera. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Kristen Kristen Walters, with the Committee Against Domestic Abuse here in Mankato on speaking out for October as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.